Father God, we recognize in this hour as we come to you, open your word and your presence, that yours is a holy presence completely. It's majestic. It's uh, far above and beyond what we can imagine. It's our hope. You are far more glorious than our minds can even paint a picture of. And so we don't want to lose the fact that you are calling us to approach your throne of grace in the hour of need. Lord, we stand and sit before you as sinners in need of your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace, your healing. We need to be dusted off and picked up and set back on the path following you. We need, Lord, to eat well, be nourished, not just from our daily bread, but your word, which is first and foremost our daily bread. And so, Lord, I pray that you give that to us. And I pray that uh, as your people, we would be changed, we'd be moved, we'd be convicted. We would be enraptured by your glory and your kindness and your holiness. And so these pages are open and it's your voice that we desire to speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week we started chapter 3 in 1 Thessalonians with a look at Paul's, Paul's uh, un dying desire for the discipleship of the Thessalonians. And hopefully we saw that the pattern of his life in relating to these churches that were most of the time founded through the evangelism efforts of him and his comrades uh, that, that he maintains an affection for them that brings him great distress when he's not able to see face to face or hear from their mouth to his ear just how their faith is going. That there is a phenomenal love that is quite contrary to where Paul was before Christ. He was, you could say, bloodthirsty. And now that uh, he is a disciple, a messenger, an apostle of our Lord, he is overflowing with the things that the Lord himself overflows with. This, this undying desire to see God's people sanctified. And sometimes we throw that church around or that word around like everybody knows it. But to be sanctified is simply to be made more holy or to grow in Christ-likeness. The whole uh, work that the Lord is doing with his people here on earth internally uh, that works its way outward is, is making us more like the Son that is completely acceptable to him. And that happens through his work and his word in what we call discipleship. And discipleship is, is simply a way of talking about how we become learners or students of Jesus. 
not necessarily of Paul or Peter or John or Matthew, but, but how uh, we follow along this band of brothers and sisters that are learners in Jesus, learning his way, learning his life, learning his love. As we've been talking about in Sunday school, the natural state or the constant state of God is, is love and grace and kindness and affection. He's provoked to anger through the sin that has entered the world. But he is always loving and kind and forgiving and gracious. Our natural state is quite opposite of that. We, we are always ready to be angry, always ready uh, to be upset, always ready to look down upon or whatever the case may be, always ready to sin. And we have to be provoked, or what I'm going to talk about today is we have to be taught to love. And it's one thing to say that we have to be taught to love, but actually you have to be embodied with the very spirit of love, which is God. You have to have the spirit of God for these things to be able to take place, to be able to actually put into play what you're learning about the love of God. You have to be equipped. You have to be a new creation. The natural man is not able to take in these spiritual things and live them out in a way that's pleasing to God. But if he creates something new in us through a new heart and a new spirit, then now we have the ability to reflect his glory, his grace, his love, and please him. Through him. So we see that this is all going to depend on him. You're going to learn. You're going to grow. You're going to go through those things. And people are going to see it. But unless the Lord is present. Unless he's completing the work that he started. From day one of your salvation. Then all you're doing is growing in head knowledge. I was taking a class through Revelation 1 and 2 this week, and we got to the letter to the uh, church at Ephesus. And that's one of the ones that most of us who have spent any time with our Bibles know because it's so shocking to us because they're commended for this great um, work of, of kicking out false teachers and staying close to good doctrine and, and knowing their Bibles. But then they're, they're really... Um, just kind of uh, stabbed in the heart by the word of Christ when he tells them that, that they forgot their first love. That everything they're doing, there's no love in it. And, and Christ's people are to be known by their love for one another, and especially our love for him. And so we can see that we can gain all sorts of things in the Christian life and knowledge in the Christian life, and we can be a part of so many programs and ministries and things uh, that take place here, but if we don't have love, then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we have nothing, nothing. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is what? Love. And so if Christian discipleship doesn't translate into loving and looking more like Jesus, then I would argue it's not discipleship. It is academic at best. It is 
practicing to win a trivia tournament. It, it's, it's, it's pointless. So the idea of discipleship is to gain knowledge about God so that we're able to recognize him, love him, draw deeper into worship and affection for him, and then let that play out horizontally to one another. And therefore, if it's going to do that, then it requires God's presence and hand. Because that's a supernatural thing to do with creatures that aren't naturally those things. And Paul's going to assure the Thessalonians of that. And John, in the book of Revelation, assures the churches of that. That Jesus did not kind of put his life up on the cross, give it up, and then go back to the Father's right hand and be like, okay, I provided the salvation. Let's see what you guys can do with it. No. He promises his ever-loving, steadfast presence with his people so that we get to glory and are presented before him as his prize, his bride, blameless, pure, and undefiled. And if you and I know anything about our sin, we're like, well, that is going to be impossible. I'm not going to make it there in that state. Oh, yes, you are. Because Christ is preparing his bride and he's using people like Paul and other shepherds with a heart that he's given them, like his heart, for these churches to be about that growth in them. And if we learn anything from this letter, it is a desire to, to be able to see the church in her glorified state ready for the Lord at the last day. This book, in every chapter, talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus, every single chapter, which tells us that Paul has a mind on eternal things, that he's not working to get people to the next quarter or the next year or or to retirement age. He's working, laboring, praying, discipling to get them to the final day where he can turn them over to the bridegroom and Jesus will glorify his bride in that hour. But until then, we labor for that. So, you have to think of the long game when it comes to discipleship. You know, I heard a lot of talk uh, this week about we really can't pronounce that someone is saved. I mean, think about it. Can you see inside someone's heart? If you read Matthew 7 and realize that the last day people are going to go to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We did miracles in your name. And Jesus is going to tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me. If, if people that seem to be Christians turn out in the end to be not Christians, then we really can't pronounce that anyone is a Christian. We can see fruits and we can recognize that and encourage that and, and, and applaud that in people, but only in the last day will that be really found out. The test is going to be if the ongoing 
discipleship and growing in Christ-likeness happens all the way to the end. So the perseverance of the saints, or, or you and I making it to the end as Christians, is going to be the test. Only those who persevere to the end will be saved. And then we get, and then we get burdened again, and we say, okay, uh, I can't do that either, if you're honest with yourself. And ergo, at the end of this book, Paul's going to make very clear that the Lord is taking his people to that day. I wake up a Christian every day because the Lord is keeping me. He started this work. He's going to complete it. It's his work. And so he gets the glory for everything I do in his name. And I get all the credit for all the bad things I do in my name. And then he gives us eternity in his presence. But picking up in verse 6, Paul had been anxious about his um, absence from the Thessalonians. He'd been anxious because that was a really tough place for him to minister. He'd been kicked out of there to such an extent that they would follow him onto Berea, right? And then, so Paul knows that he can't go back there. They wouldn't be very fruitful for them. It wouldn't, there wouldn't be the ability to minister like he wants to. He's just not able to be there. He's praying constantly, day and night, that he can get back there. But up to this point, he can't. But his comrades can. Timothy and Silas, they can get back there. And so we found that he sent Timothy. And if you read Acts 17, you'll, you'll hear of that account. And that Timothy and Silas go back there and, and begin to work with them to establish them and to exhort them in their faith. And so this is reflecting on after Timothy had gone back to the Thessalonians and reported back to Paul in Acts 18. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So Paul was going to stop at nothing, and he was going to give up his most precious commodity in his ministry, which was his brother's, in the faith, his children in the faith, Timothy and Silas, so that he could check on the Thessalonians. If they treated Paul, I mean the, the Jew, Jews in the area uh, around the Thessalonican church, if they treated Paul the way they did, then what are they going to continue to do with the Thessalonians that live there as Christians? So Paul's concerned at the, in, in verse 5 in chapter 3, he says he's, he's fearful that the tempter had tempted them and that Paul's labor would be in vain. That Satan would draw them by persecution and by affliction to leave following Christ and to leave the love of Christ. And it's interesting to note that persecution and affliction are labeled by Paul as temptations to leave the faith. 
that should put those things in, in perspective for us. That they're from the evil one, of course, but for some major reason to get us to leave Christ. And like I was telling some students this week, if according to Romans 8, Jesus has promised to not let anything separate us from the love of Christ, peril, sword, famine, nakedness, distress, persecution, if he's promised that, then what we must do is keep our eyes on that promise so that when the tempter comes in to draw us away and make us think that following Christ is not a good idea, you and I remain steadfast with an eternal perspective that it is a good idea. In fact, it's the best idea. Because he's not going to stop loving me just because you hate me or the world hates me. After all, it surely hated him. If my memory serves me correct, he ended up on a cross. And if they did that to him, then what are they going to do for me, to me? So we, we keep our discipleship in this world in perspective while also holding fast to the eternal things, which are Christ's love, Christ's promise. And our hope will not put us to shame, Paul says. But in the last days, everything will be revealed and turned to right, and our present sufferings will not worth be worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. Romans 8. You know, as much as we reference Romans 8, it must be the greatest chapter in the Bible. I know John Piper thinks so, and we may have to go through it sometime, but, but really, that's Paul's kind of magnum opus of, of everything that goes into his teaching and discipleship. And so Timothy came back. He's got good news. He's, he's like, hey, their faith and their love are steadfast and they're growing. And not only that, but they hold us in dear regard. You long to see them, Paul. Well, they long to see you. Which, which tells Paul some comforting things, right? Paul is sure, as he's already made mention this letter, that, that the message he's carrying is the message of truth. Not because he's carrying it, but because he was given it from the source that is true, God. And so if they are this affectionate back towards Paul, then that would mean, as Paul is synonymous with the gospel, that they love the gospel, that they love the truth. That, that it means more to Paul that they long to see him it means more about the gospel than it means more about him, you see. Because he makes mention that he's nothing. He's the least of all the apostles. He, he's like one untimely born. And, and the only thing that he does is bring them the same word. And so if they love Paul, then they love the gospel. For this reason, then, brothers, Paul says, In all our distress, distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. 
Paul mentioned in verses 3 and 4 the surety of their de- uh, uh, affliction and persecution that it, that it was coming and that it was present for the Thessalonians as well as Paul. So it's almost a constant state, a state at this point in his uh, missions. And it's interesting, the word distress in Greek uh, means it's a distress out of necessity. It's a, it's a, a pressing in, it's a pressure out of necessity. And we, we went back to, to Acts chapter 9 and we saw, uh, 9 and 10, that, that Jesus promised to show Paul how much he must suffer for the gospel. And Paul's later going to write what, what his suffering produces and what it's not worth comparing to. But it's, it's, it's necessary. It's as a necessary contrast when light comes into darkness that you're going to have a collision and they're going to push against each other. The glorious thing that you and I know is that for the church and for the glory of God, the light overcomes the darkness. And we, we see that most poignantly in the cross of Christ. The resurrection of Christ, that's light overcoming darkness. And that's the guarantee at the end of time, right? That the the wheat and the chaff are separated, that that Jesus comes in that most glorious scene and and he brings his people to the place where he is, to the place he prepared for them and and he uh, sends those outside of his love into eternal torment. So, he wins. He wins against his enemies, or our enemies, sin and death. And, and notice that Paul is comforted in the midst of that affliction by what? Their faith. Which, which to me is mind-blowing, right? If, if you're being afflicted like Paul is, like maybe seven days at an all-inclusive resort would be a relief, a comfort from your affliction. No, it's their faith so do you see where his heart is positioned he is he is bent on their good he is so involved in it that when it's going well with them it's going well with them even if he's in chains he (laughs) this will give you an insight into a shepherd's heart into what they're tied to into what moves them or grieves them or brings them joy it's it's the growing faith of god's people because it means something it means god is in the midst of this work god will be glorified in this work and these people are going to see him there is no greater thought there is no greater end there is no greater desire that you and i should have than that And so Paul continues at the end of each chapter to tell us Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. For now, verse 8, we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul is not necessarily there talking about his current life his breathing in and his breathing out he's talking about the life that John talks about which is Jesus 
if you are in Jesus, then you are living. And Jesus is promising us in the Gospels that he's come to give us life and to give it abundantly. That we should live and breathe in his name. But if you're not standing fast, then you're almost living a zombie-like existence. You are condemned already, John tells us in chapter 3. You are a dead man walking, so to speak. So until we have life from the source, which is Jesus, until we're those new creations that have been brought back from the dead that our sins and trespasses caused, then we're not living. But if we are in his name, then we are living. And he reminds them of that. We live, but only if you're standing fast in the Lord. And then he makes this awesome statement before he utters a brief blessing and prayer. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we, most, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. In other words, what they've been able to witness or, or gain as far as joy goes from the faith and from the work that God has been doing in the Thessalonians, they can't bring enough thanks to God for it. It outweighs everything they can return to the Lord. Everything they're receiving uh, outweighs anything they could ever return. This is, this is amazing affection just on the basis of how they're doing in Christ. That's it. Can, can you imagine being so content in the, in the growing faith of somebody else that you could be under the the greatest pressure and affliction and, and feel an overwhelming thankfulness so much so that, that you, don't, you feel like you don't have enough to return to the Lord for what, everything he's given you. Can you imagine being in that state? It is so unnatural and contrary to everything we think about when we think about how thankful we could be for things. What if the church felt this way towards one another? What if we were overflowing in thankfulness because Andy's growing in his faith or Chris is growing in his faith? What if? Then what does that cause us to do? To look out for the needs of others, right? Spiritually speaking, the betterment of others, spiritually speaking. That's where I want us to be. That's where I want to be. That nothing could bring me greater joy than your faith. <laughs> and that's, that's not um, being easily satisfied either, because that's a hard road, right? Growing faith is hard. It's hard to come by. It's hard to go through. But when we see it, man, all thanks be to God. And notice that. He's returning thanksgiving to God, not to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians, however you want to say it. To God. For them. 
And I mentioned before in verse 10, this is their earnest prayer, night and day, that they could see them face to face and supply what's lacking in their faith. They so want to go back. They see them growing. They see them flourishing. And they know that if they could just go back, they could help them so much more. And they could receive so much more joy and so much more gladness. And that the Thessalonians could receive so much more faith. Because we're all growing and we're all lacking in some regard. And, and Paul desperately wants to give them more and more. This is, this is part of the suffering, I believe, that Paul is encountering on behalf of the gospel. His missions are moving him across the ancient uh, Near Eastern world. And therefore, they're not allowing him to stay and pour into the building of the faith of these churches that are being founded through his efforts. And it's gut-wrenching. I remember I went through a two-year period where I was uh, filling pulpits and serving as an interim pastor. And, and some of these churches I would, uh, you know, visit over and over again and, and supplied the pulpit. And it, it, it got so distressing because you would catch glimpses of great faith. And you'd catch glimpses of somebody uh, having a change, somebody growing. But you've got to move on. And you can't stay and pour in. You can't stay and work. And you can't stay involved in their life. That's why my prayer before coming here was, Lord, let me go somewhere where my life can be invested. Like years, decades. The Lord is gracious and kind. And then, and then he offers an uh, insight into uh, his prayers for them. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and make and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So notice that the cause of these things, the one that Paul is crying out to or imploring or petitioning to do this is God, is the Lord Jesus himself. He's the one that he's looking to in order to cause these things. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. He's the one that's going to do it. That's the only consolation that Paul has as he moves from church to church. He knows and is brought some comfort and prays daily that the Lord would do the things that he first started to do and increase it and make it abound. These are the things that he wants for them, to abound in love for one another and for all. I mentioned at the beginning of this that, that that's what we need to grow in. That's what reflects our Lord is love for one another and for others. And so the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 
That's something that wasn't being seen then. But notice that's what Paul prays for. And he tells them that he loves them. And all of this, all of this, right? Uh, the, the, the reason for it, verse 13, so that. So if you have that in your Bible, that's a, that's a, a key. That this is why. This is why he wants these things. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. If you don't have love, there is no possibility of blamelessness and holiness. If, if God is the supreme being when it comes to holiness and righteousness and purity, and Paul knows that if, if you don't abound in love for one another and for all, then you, your hearts won't be blameless in holiness. That should tell us love is important. And that's an understatement. It's key. It's key to understanding God and why he's done what he's done and why he does what he does and why he will do what he will do. It's key to existing in his name and bringing him glory. And it's key in persevering and making it to that great marriage supper of the Lamb, the coming of our Lord Jesus. The church will be characterized by love. How did Jesus summarize all the commandments? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything is summed up in how you love those two people. I'll go ahead and give you a sneak peek at the end of this letter. Paul's going to pray again before he ends this letter in chapter 5, in verse 23. He says, now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, make you more holy, grow you, change you, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's, here's the kicker, verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. <laughs> Take comfort, my friends, that we will be holy and blameless at the day of our Lord Jesus, not because we did so well <laughs> in our discipleship and discipling one another. No, but because God remains and promises to remain with his people and, and to bring us to glory. Your trust be in him, your hope be in him, your dependence be on him, and we'll be there because of him. So in these next few moments, give thanks back to God, respond to him as he's called you, and then we'll stand and sing.